Hey, miserable bitches. We are back with another episode of Misery Manor. My name, and you know about this fucking point, is Cody. I was waiting for you to say Emily. My name is Emily. And before we get started, make sure you leave your manners at the where? Door. Door. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's your favorite podcast, is Misery Manor. It better be. Okay. I think it is. Um, how's it going? Did you have a good weekend? I can't even remember this weekend. I slept so much. Oh, so good weekend. <laughs> we <laughs> went to go visit my grandmother. It was oh, her right. 84th birthday this weekend, and she was so cute. So she gets so emotional. When she's just over, like anytime we pray before dinner or lunch, she cries. She just loves to be around people Aww. because it just makes her so happy. And like ever since I was little, she cries at all the family functions because she's like, it's my last one. I'm like, don't speak like that. <laughs> so she told herself that she's going to hold out for 10 more years. Oh, shit. I'm like, you can do it, honey. And she's so she looks good. Yeah. And she's so she was a hottie in her day, too. Yeah. And she kissed Elvis Presley when she was younger. They were friends. So it was like a, a cute little like love tap. Oh. She helped him pick out one of his first uh, vehicles, too. It was like a pink uh, convertible type car oh. because my grandpa was in the army. So when they got drafted, you know, they would do those parties and like Elvis would come and like perform. Well, they uh -huh. just became really good friends. And this was before he was like the Elvis Presley. Yeah. Um, so she has a lot of cool stories about that. But anyways, we celebrated her birthday this weekend and it was really cute. Oh, and I got her some calla lilies. And like I said, she's so emotional. And so I got her this card that I didn't think before giving it to her. And it just made her boo hoo. And my grandparents were looking at or my aunt and uncle were like, they're like, good job. Because she'll literally remember that forever. For the next 10 years. Yeah. Well, I guess until the next one. And it's so cute because she... She can text, but she has to like she speak into her voice. phone. Oh yeah, because she sends you like these long. Yeah, and things. she's always like, "Hello, this is Nene." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, I know because I can see what the number's coming from." But anyways, great weekend, full of rain, and yeah. our grandma, so can't complain. So, well, you slept and I celebrated birthdays. Actually, we had two birthdays this weekend. So, are you tired still? I'm just, you know, always kind of in that like I could just sleep anywhere. Sleep. Yeah. Well. Hopefully this episode will um, waken you because this bitch is odd. But before we get into that, let's give some shout outs. So we have a new Patreon, Cindy Waller. Woo woo. Love her. Honestly, yeah. it's so cool to be able to like know have this platform because I, I feel like we talk to her all the time. She's always posting about us. Her kids love us. Her like friends, family, all that. In fact, this is hilarious. Her daughter went on Instagram live this weekend and I just clicked on it because I like to look at people going live and I knew that she listened to the show so I was like hey miserable bitch and like she stopped halfway through she was like oh my god misery manners on she was like you have to listen to this you have to listen to the show so it was super cute so thank Aww. you Cindy feel free to share your account with your daughters too <laughs> I mean we're all we're giving here so Feel yeah. free to share that and let them listen to those episodes. And if you want to be an, epi uh, an episode, if you Please want know. to, if you want to be a Patreon, click the link in our bio. We'd love to have you or just type in Misery Manor Patreon and it'll send you to the link. Last thing I'm going to say about Patreon, you're going to get some new pins coming in the mail. They're like spooky, haunted Halloween theme. So um, I posted them on the Instagram. So just be on the lookout in your mail for those. And we're eventually going to make these kind of like a collector's item. So like you, holiday thing. Yeah. Or like, you we're know, we're just basically sending you shit that we like and we right. order extra for you. And you can stick them on your purse, on your bra, on your kitty, Titties. on your titty, wherever. Just put them wherever you want, baby. All right. Last thing. Misery Manor merch giveaway. Thank you so much to everybody who screenshot that they were listening to the show. It really helps us get the word out there because the word, the world needs to know about misery manner. Okay. 
And our oh. winner is Kelsey Jaggers. Insert. Woo, applaud. Yay, yay, yay. So I'm going to DM you. I'm going to slot up in that DM, baby, so I can get your mailing address. And then you can go to our website and pick out whatever you want. It yep. could be anything. Just let us know what you want, and then we'll get that ordered. Yep. So be on the lookout for our DMs, honey. So, cool. Enough with that. Now, oh, nope. I have one more thing. Always have something else to say. This week, you're going to be getting two episodes. So this one, obviously. And then Thursday, you're going to get your second episode of the 30-Minute Manor mystery episode. Should I say what it is? Yeah. The episode? Yeah, it's this... haunted. Um... No, it's not. Not that one, because that's not a mystery. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a later one. This one's going to be the New Orleans Axeman. Oh, oh, I don't know why. I just I don't, don't know why like that one. I don't know why the first two 30 minute Manor Miseries are both axe killings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's just how it happened. So that's what it's going to be. So, yeah. So be on the lookout. This one will come out on Wednesday, the 24th. And then we have one on Thursday as well. So and before I get started into this episode, Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. But if you want to give us anything lower than five, don't do it and forget I said that. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Yeah. So on today's episode of Misery Manor, we are going to be talking about Paul Michael Stefani. Do you know who that is? I don't. Yes, you do. Because he's also known as the weepy voiced killer. Oh, yeah, I do. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, when I first heard the weepy voiced killer, I had like the like the um, sound in my head, what he would sound like to oh, weep, like weepy. It is. It is hilarious, actually, because this guy is, anyways. It is. Are we going to play it? I'm going to play it at the very end. Okay. Because it's kind of hard to listen or to hear because it's so like muffled and he's crying so much. But I'm I gonna, mean, the I'm gonna... best part of it though is a nine one one operator. She's oh, yeah. like, "Sir, calm right. down." Right, I know. So, to start off this episode, we are going to be discuss discussing Paul's life growing up and learn about the religious influence that had a huge impact on his life and give some insight of where his actions might have stemmed from. Then we're going to examine Paul's violent attacks on several women in the early nineteen eighties. So after Paul attacked these women, it was followed by a bizarre, remorseful, hysterically crying phone calls to the police in which he confessed to his sins, but refused to face the consequences. So the way in which he spoke to the 911 dispatchers gave him the nickname, the weepy voiced killer, or in some articles, the weepy voiced man. Regardless, he's weepy, peepy, seepy, and special. Weepy. Weaky. So let's dive on in, baby. So as soon as he was old enough to speak, Paul Michael Stefani learned about the power of confession. Okay. Throughout his childhood, Paul's devout Catholic parents brought him to church each weekend where priests taught Paul the importance of confessing your sins to release the burden of your soul. But I mean, shouldn't the goal be not to sin? Yeah, just don't do it and you don't need to confess your sins. Right. So that religious conviction was one of the only few constants in Paul's rocky and unsteady childhood. So Paul was born on September 8th, 1944. Pause while you think whose birthday that is. My dad was born in 1944. There we go. So this is in the heat of like World War II. So he was one of 10 children raised on a five acre plot land right outside of Austin, Minnesota. Paul, Paul loved his family and enjoyed spending time with them any chance he could. Sadly, Paul's young life was shaken when his parents divorced. Again, things got worse when his mother remarried. And Paul wow. was just a young... 50s and 60s? 80s. I thought he said he was born in the 40s. <laughs> or 40s. I'm sorry. Yes. This happened in the 80s. I'm sorry. Yes. In the 50s and 60s. Oh. Oh, that sucks. Right. So Paul was just a very, very, very young boy. So like his mother, Paul new stepfather was extremely religious and it dominated the household oh, so no. he made sure to pass on his catholicism to his stepchildren okay. so this household there was no if ands or buts about it like you practice this you do what i say you read the bible and you do exactly what it says Sin so you can confess right so paul's new stepfather and mother engraved into their children the dangers of living a sinful life and that confession was the only way to relieve it so this stuck into Paul's head, and he thought about this quite often as a young kid. He was terrified to sin, but then at the same time, they're teaching him, well, if you do it, just confess and it goes away. And that's not how it works, sweetie. Unfortunately, 
Paul's uh, stepfather wasn't just a devout Christian. He was also very abusive. So Mm -hmm. if any of the stepchildren got in his way or made him angry, he would hit them or even throw them down the stairs in retaliation. Did he have kids of his own? I don't know. But there was he took on 10 children of. So he so he was violent to the. Right. Right. So the children were scared of their new stepfather and walked on eggshells around him. Any little slip up or disobedient action would result in a beating or a scalding. That's how I feel around little Nikki that I walk around on eggshells with him. Yeah, because he fucking hates his life. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) So according to a 2014 study in the Annals of General Psychiatry, I don't know if annals were, but it's damn sure ain't annals. <laughs> so it A-N-N-A-L-S. It seems like it's an abbreviation. Analysis, maybe, of general psychiatry. Patients who suffered from physical abuse as children exhibited, exhibited significantly higher levels of controlling and needing interpersonal patterns in their adult lives. Survivors of all kinds of childhood trauma are also far more likely to experience depression, anxiety, and disassociation. So it is unclear if Paul exhibited any of these symptoms while living with his parents, but as he got older, he seemed to become more emotionally unstable. So Paul finally got away from his abusive stepfather in the early 1960s when he graduated high school and moved 100 miles north to a city in St. Paul. He was like, I'm getting the fuck up out of here. So in St. Paul, he knew he needed to make some money. So he picked up a variety of temporary jobs, such as like a shipping clerk and a janitor at a local hospital. So by the mid-1970s, he was working at the Malberg Manufacturing Company as a janitor. And around this time, he met the love of his life, Beverly Leiter. So the two hit it off immediately, and they quickly became married. A little later, he and his wife, Beverly, welcomed a baby daughter. So it seemed like things were going well for Paul. He had a stable job, a happy wife, a healthy daughter. What could go wrong? Well, oh my God, your face. Well, this is a true crime podcast, so something's bound to go wrong, honey. This is not rainbows and butterflies. This is knives and blood. So piece by piece, all of the great things in Paul's life started to slip away from him. So it's not exactly clear, but at some point in the next few years, Paul's marriage crumbled and a divorce was quickly put into place. And because of this, Paul was no longer in his daughter's life. So it wasn't clear if this was by choice or like court order, but he completely cut off ties somehow, some way, and never saw his daughter again. Good for her. So Paul's bad luck and heartache did not stop there. In 1977, Paul was fired from his job at the Malberg uh, Manufacturing Company. He had lost Everything at this point, his wife, his daughter, his job, everything that he was living for, gone. So many believe that these occurrences are what made Paul lash out and start resulting to violence. His trigger. Trigger. So details of this incident are scarce, but at some point, Paul was arrested for assault, which later is going to come back and bite him in the ass. You'll see. So over the next three years, Paul tried to pull himself together to get back on track, to be a strong human and bounce back. And he eventually met a lady and she, and they formed a great relationship. She was from Syria, living in the U.S. The two were getting along great, just like any normal couple. And Paul felt like he was finally on the right track. Um, He even found a new job and he was excelling in it. So he felt like, hey, I'm gonna get my shit together. I got a beautiful girl by my side and I got a job, honey. I'm making that money and I got my girl. Just like you. (laughs) opposite of me well besides the job part well with this new girlfriend and a new job it seemed like his life may be getting back on track but somehow or in some time before 1980 paul's girlfriend returned to syria because her parents had made um, her an arranged marriage with somebody so she left paul high and dry one day and it completely caught him off guard so how do you think he handled the situation probably not well Probably not well. You know, he was furious and he felt very betrayed by his girlfriend. So this would be the second time in his life that his romantic partner had left him. Paul was left sad, depressed, and furious. He wanted answers. He was like, why me? What did I do wrong? But he kept questioning himself and his anger skyrocketed. He was just, it was like brewing inside of him. He was like, what the fuck? Fuck this bitch. And slowly but surely, surely his fury began to morph into something way darker. So in sadness, 
darker. In 1980, a now 36-year-old Paul felt like he was losing control of his life. In his mind, it all seemed to start with women. If he wanted to make things right for himself, he likely thought the best way would be to assert himself over, like, in control of women and make them suffer. He wanted to inflict the pain that he was feeling onto women because he thought women were the ones that did it to him. So this is where it all starts. So on New Year's Eve in 1980, Paul found himself completely alone with nowhere to go. He was like, I want to party. So he had no party to attend, no family to celebrate with. In years past, Paul was like attending parties. He was at the bars. He was hanging out with his family, celebrating the new year, living it up. But this year, he was all alone. So as the clock ticked closer to New Year, he decided to get in his car and drive around downtown St. Paul with no real plan or action in place just to see kind of what he could get into. He was just kind of going with the flow. That's a little scary. So around 1 a.m., he spotted a young woman walking by herself, and this kind of piqued his interest. So it was 20-year-old Karen Potak. She was a student at Stevens Point University. She was from Wisconsin and had traveled to St. Paul to celebrate the new year with her sisters and her friends. So while out partying, she had gotten into an argument with one of her sisters and left the club. So some sources say she just left the club. Some say that she was kind of in an argument, like a drunk argument with her sisters in the club. Either way, she left the bar. So she was fed up with the argument and she told them, you know, I'm leaving. I'm not doing this anymore. Bye. I'll see you later. So Karen left. She was walking outside in the freezing cold um, because she had actually stormed out without her coat. Because in Minnesota, they have like huge coat racks when you enter the bars. Um, So she stormed out without her coat. And they say that she still had her um, people that saw her said she still had her champagne glass in her hand. (laughs) So Paul spotted Karen as she walked and she was like shivering down an alleyway. So there was, she had no coat on. There was snow all over the ground. Mm-hmm. It was freezing outside. So he was immediately struck by the young woman. In particular, he loved the red dress that she was wearing. He thought it was beautiful. So it was her. It wasn't the situation of just a, like this little lamb that he could. No, it was her. Oh, to save? No. He... No, no, no. To control the situation. Like, I'm like wondering if he was attracted to the situation of the single girl. Oh, yeah. Someone that girl. vulnerable. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. So Paul loved the color red and it made him feel like oh, some type of way. So she was wearing simple. a she was wearing a red dress and he could not keep his eyes off of her. Like he was mesmerized. So something about her made his brain go into overdrive. It was like he could hear a voice in his head urging him to like hurt her. And like he said, like in interviews that he kept saying, like, I could hear a voice saying, like, hurt her, hurt her, kill her, kill her. So Paul pulled up alongside Karen and offered her a place to warm up. So she accepted and she got inside the car, happy as can be. She was like, thank you so much. It's freezing outside. And he was like, oh, yeah, like, no problem. Just get on in and we can, you know, I'll warm you up. So Paul started driving her and he was like telling her, um, you know, let's just take a little trip. You know, your car heats up when, you know, you start going. So he drove away from the downtown area where she was, and he started heading towards a place he knew very well. So he was actually headed to the Malberg machine shop where he used to work uh, before he was fired. And she was like, um, where are we going? So he pulled into his old place of work, and like right when he came in there, this strong emotion came over him. Like that was unbearable because he had just been fired there, and he was yeah. just like, oh my God, fuck this place. Um, so he pulls in and he goes to a secluded spot behind the engine room where it was like quiet and dark. There was no one around. And at this point, Karen was very confused and she was kept asking like, where are we? Can we please go back now? You were really scaring me. Um, I don't want to be here. So Paul wasn't worried. Like he knew nobody was around. Like they were completely alone. Well, didn't you say it was New Year's? It was new, but they're in this machine shop in the middle of nowhere. Well, I know, and no one's going to be working, but the engine room wouldn't be loud if the engine is on. I don't think it's on because it's not in a bit like working at the moment. <laughs> so, oh. It's after hours. <laughs> so Paul turned off his car engine, went to the truck, and pulled out a tire iron. He walked over to Karen and said, Get out of the car. So Karen was terrified for what was about to happen, and she was like, No, like, leave me alone. I want to go home. You're scaring me. I'm not getting out of this car. You need to take me back right now. So as you know, Paul wants to control these situations. And Karen's disobedience infuriated Paul. He was like, how fucking dare she? So he took matters into his own hands. 
He hit her over the head with the tire iron, then dragged her out of the car and threw her onto the ground. As Karen lay unconscious in the snow, Paul hit her another dozen times <gasps> with this weapon. On the head? Yes, cracking her skull and exposing parts of her brain. So when they said when they got to the site, it was one of the most horrible sights they had ever seen. When well, he was tire irons are like heavy. heavy. So when he finished, Paul got back into his car and sped off, leaving Karen's body behind in the cold. So the officer said that when they arrived, it was like a bloodbath in the snow, scary, like something out of a murder movie. When did they find her body? I'm about to tell you. So Paul got back in the car, satisfied oh. with what he just did. He felt great. But then he started thinking. And all those thoughts about his upbringing started coming in. Paul started thinking more. And he was suddenly overwhelmed with shame and guilt and fear. So all these thoughts became less jumbled. And he realized that he needed to help Karen. Like, he can't just leave her there. You know, so he didn't know what else to do. So in order to free him, free himself from, like, what he had just did, he was like, you know what? I need to call 911 and I need them to save her. You know, that's the right thing to do. He's confessing. So at 3 a.m. at a phone booth, he called 911 and in a shaky, high-pitched and very emotional voice, Paul told the operator that there was an emergency. A badly hurt woman near the railroad tracks by the Malberg machine shop was laying there and he begged them to send an ambulance and save the girl's life. And like in the recording, he's like, you gotta get here. <laughs> I know. Like, the people were like, what the fuck is going on? So the dispatcher asked for details of what happened, but Paul refused to answer any of the questions. He just said, quote, you need to get there quick. There's a girl hurt. And finally, the dispatcher was like, well, what is your name, sir? And he hung up. Yeah. Because he's a little coward. So police officers raced to the factory and they found 29-year-old Karen badly injured like i said her skull was cracked her head was completely almost split open with parts of her brain she like wasn't dead yet no and she was still alive because of the snow i don't know i guess they just didn't have like a blunt force hard enough to kill her but she was still alive unconscious though so there was little evidence at the crime scene that could help police identify karen's attacker even when she regained consciousness because Karen wasn't able to help. When she got to the hospital, she had life-saving surgery, but she suffered such significant brain trauma that she had no memory or recoll recollection of what happened that entire night. But she could remember other, like her name and stuff like that? No. So it, that took her a long time. She had no clue. Like when she showed up in the hospital, she was like, what happened? Like, I don't could understand why I'm here. Yeah, she could talk. Could not remember who picked her up. Nothing. But did so, she know who she was? She knew who she was. She That's could remember insane. everything like prior to the event. Like she remembered kind of being at the club. It was scattered. That's she knew that like she went there. She's like a bad hangover. She remembers <laughs> all of that, but she's been bashed in the head and her brain. Brain. So they were hoping that like her testimony would help them figure out who the hell this person was. But she didn't know anything. So there was no evidence of sexual assault, robbery making it very difficult for them to figure out the motive behind the attack. Isn't that crazy? That right. it's like, oh, two more shitty things didn't happen, so right. we can't figure out. We what... can't. Right. We needed this and this to happen to seal the deal. So as the investigation continued over the next few days, the detectives deter a return to the mysterious 911 call. They were like, maybe we should kind of investigate that more. So they listened to the recording of the emotional man who reported Karen's attack. And it didn't take them long. They were like, you know what? I think this is the guy who did it. Because he never said, I killed her. He was like, "You, there's somebody laying yeah, there. Yeah, but who else would see, see that? that? Like, and, and also, if you saw there. it, why did you not help the person? You know? Right. Or I would say, like, hey, I'm going to wait here until you get here. Like, what can I do? Because, you know, they'll help you talk, you know, apply pressure to this. But he was nowhere to be found. So, And I wonder how far the telephone booth was was from, from the actual place. Because he had to go back in town for this. So he had already left the scene. So to me, that that is clear sign right so back in his own home paul watched the news closely nervously and anxiously waiting for them to mention the attack he was like pacing his house back and forth like waiting at any moment for them to like bust through the door and get him but they never did so as time passed he realized that he had gotten away with this brutal crime and he thought okay so i acted out my sinful urges i confess to it i'm in the clear see right what it is yeah. Life. So Paul was horrified by what he had done, but he knew deep down inside 
that there was a damn good chance that the violence inside him is going to emerge again. And this time he, he was like, you know what, maybe the victim won't survive. So I've got to prepare for that too. So Paul decided to lay low for about six months. Okay. But on June 3rd, 1981, he was stuffing his fat face at a diner. And I did write his fat face at a diner when those feelings he had came back. He started thinking about what he did to Karen. And he was like, you know what? I think I'm ready. So at this diner, 18-year-old Kimberly Compton was wearing red. And she and she caught his eye. That damn red got him feeling all hot, sweaty, and bothered. I did not know that element of the story. So she had just graduated from high school and was new to St. Paul. She literally had only been in St. Paul for a few hours when she met him. So she had literally gotten off the bus saw a diner called Nikki's across the street from the bus station little Nikki's and went there and ordered some food so she was hungry and she was like you know what I've been on this bus I'm new to the city let me get me some good diner food so he struck up a conversation with a teenager and was like hey since you're new here I would love to take you to show you some parts of the city I know this beautiful area by a river. It's so gorgeous. I need to show you. Let's go. Uh, So she was happy to just have like a new friend in town. So Kimberly was like, yeah, let's go. So the staff and the other guests in the diner saw their reaction. uh, I'm sorry, their interaction and did not think anything strange or different about the encounter. Yeah, he's older. She's young. But they just said they look like kind of like friends, you know. This is in the 80s. Mm -hmm. But she's 18 and he's 37. Right. So later, Paul would say that he had no conscious intention to hurt Kimberly. When she got into his car, he truly did just want to take her on a ride around the city. But just minutes after they started driving, he said he heard the voice in his head again saying, hurt her, hurt her, hurt her. Okay. Uh, Mon said, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> so Paul drove to a secluded place he knew very well. This was a spot with a, you know, a good view of the river. When they parked, he told Kimberly, hey, go explore. Go look at the river. It's beautiful. Come on, I'll go with you. So while Kimberly walked down to the riverside, Paul crept around to the back of his car, grabbed an ice pick from his trunk, and then proceeded to follow her. So he hid the weapon inside like his like jacket, and the two laid in the grass together, enjoying the sounds of the wind and the currents made. And she was actually, this is what he said in court, like, like he said that he... Like, she undid her bra and stuff. Like, I don't know if they were going to get frisky or what, but that could just be him saying that. Probably. You know? So they're enjoying the river. It was relaxing. It's beautiful. Kimberly was having a blast. She even told him, like, thank you so much for bringing me here. You know, let's come more often. It's beautiful. I'm, I'm so glad you showed me this. And then, with like, without even saying a word back to her, he leaned over and s- began to stab Kimberly. Oh, my God. So he stabbed her a shocking 61 times with the nice pick. But even that wasn't enough. She was still alive. So when he was done with the ice pick, he dropped it and strangled Kimberly with her own shoelace. And then she was dead. Okay. So. That's a lot a lot no one else was around no and i think this was a kind of like nightish area and then it's not like this river with swans and like a playground no but nightish area you mean mm-hmm. nightish time nightish time and area <laughs> but he had to unlace her shoe i'm pretty sure she couldn't fight back after 61 times that that's a that lot that would take a lot of time like right. that would probably take like two minutes yeah three minutes mm-hmm. four so looking down at Kimberly's body, he began to understand like what he had just done. He was like, holy shit. He knew he had to clean it up. So he pushed the body away from the banks of the river, hoping to make it kind of hard for anybody to spot her. So then he walked back to his car. He like threw the bloody ice pick as far as he could and headed back to his car to go home. Well, he would be covered in blood. Yep. So once again, Paul's mind cleared as he drove away from the scene and the reality of his crime and the brutality of what he had just done sunk in and this time but he knew this time like without a doubt that she was dead and he couldn't help her by calling 911 this time so paul thought he was like well what should i do like i can't call 911 and ask for an ambulance like he uh, like he did with karen because she was already dead like what good would that do so he really didn't know what to do to help the situation so just shortly after the killing three teenage boys found kimberly's body and immediately called the police 
the police arrived on scene and were instantly confused by the murder, just like the attack on Karen. Mm -hmm. So there were obviously no clues, which left them thinking like, hmm, they couldn't find like the murder weapon, nothing. Like they were so confused. Well, his weapon is a weapon of convenience. Well, I mean, so far. Right. So they knew obviously that Kimberly had been stabbed over um, dozens of times with the weapon. And they assumed at the time it was a screwdriver or something kind of within that realm. So around the same time as the investigation began, Paul knew what he had to do. He was like, I have to do it. I'm just going to call the police. So he called and he was like, you know what? This is going to help me clear my guilt in the past. I got to do it to make it right. So throughout his entire life, you know, Paul remained this devout Christian, right? And Catholic. And he was faced with like all these horrible actions. And really, that was the only way to make things better. So For him. For him. Right. So Paul called. Into, and he spoke very slowly into the receiver, telling them, he was like, first, don't talk. Just listen. Like, crying. And he was one. like, if Paul told the police he was so sorry for killing Kimberly Compton. And he explained, like, he didn't know what he had done. And strangely, he it seemed he like... He said her name? Yeah, he said his, their names. This one's name, yeah. So, strangely, he seemed disappointed, but the police hadn't even arrested them yet. So, they thought that was kind of alarming. And he whispered on the phone, quote, God damn, will you find me? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't help myself. I keep killing somebody. Which not doesn't make sense. But yeah, he's like crying hysterically. So weirdly enough, when the police were asked about this, they thought it was a prank call. Now that's how crazy his voice sounded. Yes. Like, Somebody is prank calling us. Who the funk is it? It's some goofies on Misery Manor prank calling us again. No. So that's how his voice sounded like weird okay it is wild so shortly after the call a forensic examiner determined that the weapon what examiner i didn't say examinator okay determined that the weapon must have been an ice pick or something similar to it so it was chilling confirmation that paul's hysterical phone call wasn't a hoax it was the speaker killing on the phone they knew it so side note this is crazy in kimberly's autopsy they looked at her like undigested food in her stomach to show that it had been hours right after she ate. And they saw that she had ate a barbecue beef, like sandwich and French fries within hours of her attack. Mm-hmm. And this helped them trace it back to the diner. And that exact meal was the special of the day. So they went to the diner and they're like, oh, it must have been the Kimberly Compton. Like all the witnesses there, they were like, okay, well, she was talking to this guy. She was, you know, younger. This is in the 80s. This is in How the 80s. They do that. Do what? Like, chuck it back there. Well, I don't think it... These people are a lot smarter than us, so I think that they know what they're doing. (laughs) But, oh, a barbecue beef sandwich and fries? Mmm! She probably had gas, too. From then on, investigators named him the Weepy Voice Killer, right? Because they didn't have a name. Right. So, with no other clues to his identity, they focused on the phone calls. They released the recordings to the media, hoping someone must recognize his voice. Then they waited for him to call again. So while investigators waited for the call, Paul watched the news reports of Kimberly Compton's death. He spent days just agonizing over the pain because he felt this like building sense of guilt and it just became too much to handle. So he picked up the phone again, dialed 911 once more. But unlike times before, the police were like ready because at this point they're like, we're tracking all these calls, like just be prepared for him to call again. So I wonder if they televised that enough and on purpose to get him to call again. Right. So they listened closely as Paul spoke quietly and sadly in a soft, whimpering state. So Paul apologized for what he had done. He told the cops he couldn't help himself and he didn't understand his own motivations for the crime. He also called and said that the newspaper accounts of some of the murders were inaccurate. So he was correcting them on what they had reported. So they were like, oh, it's so totally fucking you. So his next call was on June 11th in a whimpering, barely coherent voice. He said, I'm sorry what I did to Compton and hung up. (laughs) So Paul called again and he was like, I'd rather kill myself than be locked up. That's really what he sounds like. Yeah. She's probably up there and wherever she is. And she's like, fuck off. Right. So then he ended the call again by claiming like a child who's been caught. I promise I won't do it again. So the police tracked the phone to a pay phone and they tried to keep him on the phone as long as possible. But when they got to the pay phone, obviously he had been got the fuck out of there. Right. 
Mm-hmm. So on the phone calls, Paul asked someone to stop him. And believe me, they were working hard to do that. He was like, you have to stop me or I'm just going to keep doing it. So investigators at this point were worried that they were now dealing with a serial killer, right? Right. And they eventually had linked the January attack on Karen to this one as well. Of course. So while information displayed during Karen's attack was slightly different, a tire iron instead of an ice pick, the police had an idea that it was the work of the same man. um, And they were like, fuck, this is going to be bad if we don't catch him soon. So the biggest and most important evidence between the cases was the same man called the police after each time confessing and expressing remorse in a very distinctive weepy voice. One. So besides this, police found two other similarities that stood out. Neither woman was sexually assaulted and the odd coincidence that both women were wearing red clothing. The police released this information to the public, hoping to use the eyes and ears of the locals to catch this killer on the loose. But after making connection between Paul's two attacks, the leads dried up and the case went cold as a poppy popsicles. Did you really write that? I sure did. So the police were working hard to track down this killer and Paul knew this. So he was very careful of his every move. Paul managed to contain his violent urges not to stir up too much drama in the city, honey. So he lived a seemingly normal life for over a year. He laid low. He only went out when he needed something. He kept to himself. But baby, by the summer of 1982, he was ready. And I hate to laugh at that, but I'm just... I know, The whole situation just like, is just He's what? like, stop me. But I'm going to make it really... I know. Hard. He's like, stop me. Stop me. But I don't want to give you clues wanna... as to how to stop me. I think that made him feel better. So two months after Kimberly Compton's death, police were called to a crime scene where a man named Alan Lopez was holding his family hostage. During the negotiations, he told investigators, I'm the one that killed Kimberly Compton. So as it turned out, he had a history of mental illness and assaults. Yeah. So when the police tried to bring him in for questioning, he ended up killing himself. So they're like, fuck, the guy died. The guy died. So the police thought, he was the one responsible for the murders, right? Because for six months after that, they had no more weepy voiced calls coming into the station. However, when they did a check to see where Alan Lopez was the day of Kimberly Compton's murder, it was proved that it wasn't him because he was checked into a mental hospital at the time. So back to the drawing board they go. So on the afternoon of July 21st, Paul was driving through the suburb of Lauderdale when he entered a dis. You know, he kept referring to it as a disassociative, what's the word? Disassociative state. Disassociative? There you go. <laughs> state. Just like when he attacked his previous two victims. So it's unclear what triggered this event. And we were, we're just going to have to take Paul's word for it. Because he would say something would come over him. And then that's what would happen. Oh my God, I hate this man. So as Paul was driving by some apartment buildings, he spotted 33-year-old Kathleen Packing her car for a fun weekend getaway. Was this spelled the C or a K? K. Oh. So Kathleen, just like Karen and Kimberly, was wearing red. All Ks, all girls wearing red. <laughs> Kathleen, Karen, and Kimberly. So also, um, also likely that Paul knew Kathleen personally, and here's why. So after the police searched her home, they found like an address book, like a phone book. And in it, she had his number, oh. and next to it, it said Paul S. So it's like, oh, so maybe he actually knew this one. So he watched from across the street, and that was never confirmed. So he watched from across the street as Kathleen finished packing and walked back up to her house. Because remember, she's packing for a little getaway. She, he was watching her through the window. Through her window. Well, watching her, like, pack stuff into her car, and then she went inside. Uh... So after waiting a few minutes to make sure no one was watching, Paul got out of his car and, and crept through Kathleen's unlocked door. St- Wait, her Front house? Door of her oh. apartment. So inside, he heard noises coming from up in the bathroom. So quietly, he made his way towards the sounds, and he found Kathleen preparing to take a bath. So she was drawing her water. She was listening to music. She was, like, getting out soaps and stuff, like, just to have a relaxing bath. Oh, my bath. God. That's, like, exactly what I do. Really? So bags were packed, and she was just going to get into the bathtub before heading out for the weekend with her friends. So right when he saw the opportunity, he lunged into the bathroom and grabbed Kathleen before she could scream for help. So he grabbed her mouth because Paul knew if she made a lot of noise, they're in an apartment complex and people are going to hear her. Right. And she could, if she knew him, she could scream his name. Right. So Paul put his hand over her mouth, like kind of like dead legged her and shoved her head beneath the water in the bathtub that she had drawn and just held it there. So it, 
So Paul, Paul would later reflect that the murder felt like a game or like an out-of-body experience. As he drowned Kathleen, he said he thought to himself, what are you doing? She's dying. Why are you doing this to her? She did nothing wrong. She's dying. Let go of her. But the voice inside, you know, said, don't, don't do it. Let her die. So, so despite these thoughts he was having, Paul didn't listen and just continued to drown Kathleen. When he came out of this state, he saw Kathleen's dead body in the bathtub. So it's not clear why, but this time Paul chose not to call the police and confess, but he still needed a way to find, to let this like guilt out. So he didn't call the police this time. You know what he did? He got in his car and he drove to the church and he sat in the pews and he sobbed. <laughs> Just crying, honey, crying. Do you know what's so scary is that he can, he, can kill anyone and just be, without a weapon, nothing. Right. Oh my God. Right. That's the freaky part. So Paul needed to confess in order to avoid feeling the psychological repercussions of his actions. In a way, he was protecting himself from truly acknowledging what he had just done. He felt like if he went to church, it would he would have a clean slate all over again. So unfortunately, the confessions did not lead to change in his behavior, and many um, have allowed him to continue. Or, and this allowed him to continue killing. Police investigated Kathleen's murder without one of Paul's trademark phone calls tied to it. So because of this, there was nothing to even suggest at the time that he was the culprit um, of that attack. Okay. So they weren't even taking Karen and Kimberly and uh, tying it to Kathleen's murder. They thought right. this was completely different. Well, there's no blood involved in this. Right. One. So for Kathleen's murder, everything about the crime was different. It was in an apartment. No weapon was used. No 911 call was made. So the detectives involved in the Weepy Voice Killer, they didn't even look closely at Kathleen's murder. Like, they were out to get this, like, quote, potential serial killer and not whoever was doing this. That's sad. So, yeah. And they had no idea that the killer actually just changed up his rules a bit and killed Kathleen in a different way. So on August 5th, two weeks after the murder of Kathleen, Paul met 40-year-old registered nurse Barbara Simmons. And they were at the Hexagon Bar in Minneapolis. So me and Josh are actually going to Minneapolis this weekend or Minnesota. So I looked up this bar. I was like, oh, bitch, we got to go, baby. We got to go, baby. And it burned to the ground in 2020. So. Oh, like most of our lives. Right. So what? No, not mine. So Barbara, much like his other victims, was also wearing red clothing. So Paul approached Barbara and he was like, hey, do you have a cigarette I could borrow? And Barbara was like, of course, I'll smoke one with you. So the, beginner, the pair began talking, laughing, having some cocktails, like from everybody in there. They were like, they looked like they were having a great time. So Barbara thought Paul was like charming. They spoke long enough for her to feel comfortable with him. So as the night came to a close, Paul offered Barbara a ride home and she graciously accepted Barbara even told the bartender, he's cute. I hope he's nice since he's giving me a ride home. We'll oh, see what happens. I remember that clip. So in good old Paul nature, honey, Paul did not drive Barbara home. Instead, he drove her to a secluded spot on the banks of the Mississippi River. When Barbara began to question Paul what he was doing, he attacked her. She was like, why are we here? It's way too dark outside to enjoy like nature in a river. Let's come back another time. Like, I think you're great. I just really want to go home. So Paul did not care. He stabbed Barbara over 100 times <gasps> with an ice pick and left her dead on the side of the Mississippi River. Paul hid her body near the river and quickly got rid of the murder weapon again. So early the next morning, a young paper boy discovered the lifeless body in the grass and called the police um, and was like, oh my God, you have to get here right now. So... Police detective Don Brown correctly guessed that this wasn't the killer's first murder. Two days later, Paul was ready to make another confession. So he called the police station, and when they answered, he was already weeping. Like, And he told them he was just so sorry for murdering that girl by stabbing her. Importantly, he also revealed that he had murdered other people and mentioned Kimberly Compton as his first victim. So once again, he sobbed, and he was terrified of going to prison then screamed, I would rather kill myself than be incarcerated. So Paul also, also added, I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her so many times. 
Kimberly Compton was the first one over in St. Paul. So now he's like basically tying all these people to him. But they why had already did he had say it. Kimberly Compton was the first one. She wasn't. Kimberly Compton? She, she was, was the one that. Oh, Karen was the first one. Yeah, but she didn't die. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, because, he, yeah, so she didn't die. He's saying he killed her. So the police officers felt like they were onto something. He tried to keep Paul talking, hoping he would now reveal his location because it seemed like he was kind of making some breakthrough and giving more details. So right. Paul gave another anguish cry. He said, I'll never make it to heaven. <laughs> and then he hung up. So the police were so frustrated. They knew that Barbara was another victim of the weepy voice killer, but not much else. So as Paul crimes seemed to be coming more frequently, they knew that they needed to act quickly because it was only a matter of a time before he strikes again. So luckily they caught a break when investigating Barbara's murder. So the bartender at the Hexacom bar gave them a very detailed description of the man that she saw Barbara leave with. So the bartender told police that he was a man in his 40s, six feet tall, dark hair, dark eyes, kind of heavier set. So the police combed through their records to find men who fit the description and had previous records of assault. So they presented a photo lineup of eight suspects to the bar staff who quickly identified the man they had seen the night of the murder. They correctly identified that it was none other than Paul Michael Stefani. Because remember, he was arrested in the very beginning for mm -hmm. assault. So they had his record on file. That's right. how he got caught. So with that, investigators finally had their prime suspect, but they couldn't arrest him just yet. They needed more evidence. So okay. Paul wasn't sitting at home waiting. He was ready for his next victim. Luckily, this will be the last one. So shortly before midnight on August 20th, 1982, only two weeks after the murder of Barbara Simmons, Paul was back on the prowl. He drove into East Minneapolis, where he approached 19-year-old sex worker Denise Williams. She was exactly his type, which as far as we know, I guess she was wearing red. Did she have a kid? What was her name? Her name was Barbara Simmons. Oh. I'm, I'm sorry, Denise Williams. Denise Williams. Barbara was the one before. Denise yeah. Williams. So Paul offered Denise $100 for her services, which she gladly accepted. So she gets into his car, and Paul drove back to his apartment in St. Paul, where they had sex. Afterwards, Paul offered to drive Denise home, but as they drove back towards Minneapolis, Denise noticed that Paul was driving down back roads and through residential neighborhoods instead of taking the highway, which was the way that they first came to this location. So this made Denise very nervous and scared. She was like, something's not right. So during the ride, Paul started talking to her about all of his sexual fantasies, and Denise noted that, that they were very like dark and twisted. So she was like pretending to be interested in the topic. Um, Denise was like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. But like in the back of her head, she was like, I got to get the fuck up out of this car or I'm going to be in trouble. So eventually Paul pulled into a dark, secluded parking lot. After turning off the ignition, he aggressively demanded Denise pay for her ride. He was like, you had to pay for this ride. She was like, well, hold up, but you told me you would take me uh -huh. home. That's part of the fee. <laughs> so Denise became very scared and attempted to get out of the car, but Paul grabbed her and did not let the young 19-year-old go. So Denise began to scream and put up a fight, and you know, in parking garages, like, it echoes. Yeah. So Paul pulled out a screwdriver this time out of his glove compartment and stabbed Denise in her abdomen. Just the one time? So Denise fell back into the back seat and Paul continued to stab her again. Boom, boom, boom. So Denise knew if she wanted to live, she had to fight back. So she kept telling herself, fight back, be strong, you can do this. So she reached down on the floor trying to find something that she could attack him with. And she found like um, an old glass soda bottle so she clenched the bottle and didn't let him see. And finally, she smashed the bottle over Paul's head. And then with the broken glass remaining in her hand, she started to slice Paul's face. And he's like screaming. He's bleeding out. And like, in fact, when I upload the photo to our Instagram of his he's mugshot. He's bleeding out? Of his face. Oh. Uh, in, in fact, like when I upload his mugshot photo on Instagram, he has bandages all over his face. That's so cute. So Paul yelled out in pain as Denise fought for her life. And like for a moment, it seemed like she had the upper hand. So Paul pushed open the passenger side of the door. They both fell out onto the concrete. And soda, but like glass soda bottles, especially then, those are so 
thick. Thick, right. So Paul tried to hush Denise while she was screaming for help. She was screaming bloody murder. Help me, help me, somebody help me. He's trying to kill me. And like oftentimes you hear in stories like the screaming and crying for help just makes it a lot worse. But luckily, Douglas Douglas Panning was there and he heard the screams. Panning? Panning. And he was like, what in the funky donkey is that sound? He was like, somebody's in trouble. So he ran over to Paul and grabbed his hand and he was like, don't fucking do it. But Paul's like a big dude. So Paul was not scared of Douglas. He was in like complete rage and like he just saw red. Well, literally. Um, yeah. <laughs> so he lunged at Douglas with like the screwdriver and like chased him out of the parking lot. And Douglas ran back inside his house and called the police, knowing that authorities were going to arrive soon. So luckily for Denise, when Paul returned to the scene, he did not continue to attack her. She's Insta still there. Yeah. Instead, he got into his car and like sped away. He like left but the she scene. she was out of the car. She was out of the car, but she was still bloodied and battered on the pavement. So he returned home, emerging from his like crazy state and noticed that he was bleeding very, very, very bad from the injuries from Denise. And he was like, oh, my God, I need to get to the hospital. Like, this is going to be bad. I'm losing way too much blood. So he was like worried for his life. So he called 911 and he told the dispatcher that he had been beaten up, like robbed and he needed an ambulance quickly. Was he crying? I don't know if he was crying at that point because that would give away his identity, right? So Paul didn't realize that the 911 dispatcher had been briefed on his crimes as well as the phone calls that followed and they were like already on high alert. So the dispatcher was like, oh, this kind of sounds like the weepy voice killer. Like, So his voice did? His voice. She was like, oh, I think we need to be like prepared. Because you know? he was in distress. Distress, right. So soon as after the ambulance arrived to take Paul to the hospital, they called back to the police and they're like, no, this is definitely the dude. Like he's crying. He's in this ambulance. Like y'all need to get there. So right when he got to the hospital, the police were there and they were like, gotcha, buddy. So they were ready to bring this killer to justice. So once Paul's injuries were treated, the police officers brought him to the police station where he was led directly into an interrogation room. So detective Don Brown sat across from him and offered like a sympathetic ear but he was not fooled, right? So he pretended to be concerned about the attack because he was like, I was robbed. I was attacked. How dare they? Like, I didn't do anything wrong. Oh, my God. And once Paul was comfortable talking, Detective Brown opened his file on the weepy voice killer, confronting Paul with the pictures of his victim. So he literally just pulled out the photos, threw them on the table and was like, hmm, what up? What do you got to say about these people? And Paul's demeanor changed immediately. He like his voice became that high pitched whiny voice, oh, my God. much like a child being caught, like when they did something they weren't supposed to. His expression was that of like a in trouble kid. Like he just looked like, oh, my gosh. So in a matter of seconds, the detective was like, this guy transformed into the person that the weepy voice killer. Like, that has to be scary. Right. Like horrifying. To see. So they knew they had their killer. Even confronted with the evidence against him, though, Paul refused to come clean. So unlike confessing in church or over the phone, a confession to the police didn't do the same thing for him. So he knew that if the police knew the truth, like he's going to go to prison. And remember, he kept saying on these phone calls, that's his worst fucking nightmare. So he was like, no, that's not me. I didn't do this. Like, you have to believe me. I can't go to prison. So Paul maintained his innocence. And instead, he wasn't. And he said, you know, I'm not the voice of the cause. But the denials did not convince anyone. So over the next few days, Detective Brown spoke to people who knew Paul, including his sister and his ex-wife. So they were more than happy to testify. They were like, no, this guy's fucked up. Like anything you want us, wow. like, we'll, we'll, like, we knew the minute we heard the recordings that that was going to be him. His so, poor daughter. So unfortunately, the detectives didn't have enough physical evidence to charge him for the attacks of Karen and the murder of Kimberly. But the prosecutors charged him for what they could, which was the murder of Barbara Simmons in the attempted murder of Denise Williams. Okay. So luckily, Paul could not be connected to both attacks um, by eyewitness testimony after a... Wait, I'm sorry. Luckily, Paul can, could be connected to both attacks by eyewitness testimony. Okay. So after a long, drawn-out trial in April of 1985... Paul was finally convicted of all charges against him and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Only 40. But the story didn't end there. After a decade of being behind bars in December of 1997, 53-year-old Paul was diagnosed with stage 4 skin cancer 
which had already like what's it called mastitized mm-hmm. throughout his entire body so mm-hmm. he was given less than a year so as a like as he knew death was quickly approaching he was like i know that there's one thing that i need to confess before i die Oh God. So being the devout Christian he claimed to be, Paul then confessed to everything. So Paul sat down with a pair of detectives and told them that he would lay out all the crimes in detail if they granted him one wish. He just wanted a picture. <laughs> they aren't a fucking genie. <laughs> he just wanted a picture of his mother's tombstone on her grave. So the investigators were like, all right, get him the fucking photo so he'll talk. So, and he did. They got him the photo and he started Com- that would uh, be my fucking job if I worked for the police. Right, department. right. Go take a picture of that fucking stone. <laughs> so he admitted to the attacks on Karen and the murder of Kimberly. Then he surprised them by confessing to the drowning murder of Kathleen, which police were like, wait, what? Because this was not something that they suspected was him. They thought that was just still an unsolved case that they were trying to, like, yeah. they weren't even tying yeah. it to him. So we're like, right. oh, we'll add that to the list as well. Um, but he's like, I just need to come clean so I can just apologize to all the families and the victims before I die. And he was like, I don't want to risk going to hell. So I'm going to confess to all this. Yeah. Baby, you already sealed the deal. You're going straight to the pits of hell, mama. So he kept telling them, you know, I feel enormous guilt. I'm confused. I don't know why I did these crimes. He was like, I'm lost. I don't, I don't understand it. But they were like, why did you do it? Like, I, we want to know the motivation yeah. behind the crimes. And he was like, I, it's not me. Like, something came over me. What an easy comp out. Comp out? Cop out. Cop. So, detectives believe Paul made his phone calls because of his parents' religious instructions when he was a child. But the investigators and prosecutors were also skeptical of Paul's motivations for coming clean at last to them. They did not think that he was a killer trying to ease others' pains. They saw a man trying to grasp one last shed of power, right? So according to criminologist Nicola Melissa, the final stage of a serial killer's predatory cycle is the satisfaction phase, the period after a murder when they feel momentarily powerful, feeling the void of inadequacy that led to the crime in the first place. So they thought that he just... You know, because they would all listen if he was like, I'm going to confess to this. He once again have regained the power. But to this day, his motivation for the crimes remains a mystery. And now with Paul dead, we honestly will never truly find out why he did these. So he died on June 12th, 1998, less than six months after his final confession. Not his first confession, like his final confession. So he was only 53 years old when he passed. So some believe that he really did lose control of himself during the brutal attacks when he was overcome by guilt. So Don Brown noted that Paul turned into a completely different person when he spoke of the crimes. To this day, Paul Michael Stefani is known as the Weepy Voice Killer. And that concludes this episode. When did he die? I just said that. He died on June 12th, 1998, when he was 53 years old. Sorry. (laughs) Through the skin scan. So... Through his skin. Through skin cancer. Whoops. So I think at this point, I'm going to insert the weepy voice 911 phone calls. I, I'm going to do it. The quality of them is not very good, but just, I'm just going to do you it. You can gather though. Yeah. You'll be able to. So I'm going to insert that right here, baby. So hope you enjoyed it. Hope you loved it. Hope you don't have nightmares from it. Bye everybody. Is that weepy? <laughs> weepy and fucking creepy. I'm